You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is The Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is Wednesday, May 12th, and congratulations to all of the new members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, including Tina Turner, Foo Fighters, and Jay-Z. And I know a lot of people are saying Jay-Z is a hip-hop artist and doesn't belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but guys, that's some bullshit, all right? I mean, people haven't made rock and roll music since like 1974. You wanna stay relevant? You gotta evolve. Kinda like how the History Channel used to be straight history, and now it's just random weirdos trying to find ghosts. That ain't history, but I'm watching. Anyway, on tonight's show, we meet the woman who's hoarding vaccines in her body. Jordan Klepper recounts the votes in Arizona, and the GOP gets a makeover. So, let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. All right, y'all, let's kick things off in Texas, Mexico's hat. If you live in the suburbs of Houston, you probably expect life to be pretty uneventful. You know, kids riding bikes, women holding book clubs, dudes shooting AR-15s at trash cans for looking at them funny. But one thing you definitely don't expect is a 200-pound jungle cat. This morning, authorities still on the prowl, searching for a missing tiger seen roaming the streets of Houston. It makes us cringe uh, to all of us just to know there's a wild animal at large. Oh my gosh. The big cat's unexpected appearance, leaving neighbors and even Houston's mayor baffled. Let's find the tiger and let's place the tiger in the most appropriate place. You know, this has become kind of commonplace in Texas, and so I really hope that Senators Cruz and Corman will sign on to the Big Cat Public Safety Act, because if they had last year when the House passed this bill, the Senate didn't bring it up for a vote. If it had passed last year, this wouldn't have happened this time. Holy shit! It's Carol Baskin! Wow! It's so weird seeing someone from the beginning of quarantine. You know what it's like? It's like turning on the news and seeing that T-shirt that I had to use as toilet paper. Like, wow, my T-shirt made it. Oh man, I'm glad to see it's doing okay. And I know Carol is blaming politicians, but I think she should be the one finding that tiger. I mean, she's got experience with big cats. She has her own sanctuary and she's already married to the bait. Plus, if you ask me, now is not the time to politicize a tiger on the loose. Please, people, every time a tiger escapes, there's a rush to push tiger control, and I'm sick of it. We need to accept that occasional tiger attacks are just a part of living in a free country. And look, man, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. All my sympathies here are with the tiger. People are shocked that the tiger isn't where it belongs, but who are the ones who brought it there? It's the people, right? And everyone's like, ah, he's not supposed to be here. Well, then give him directions back to the jungle. The crazy thing is that somehow the tiger is still on the loose after three days. How the hell is that possible? How can they not find a tiger in Texas? It's a tiger, not a Planned Parenthood. But let's move on to the pandemic that's still on the loose, COVID-19. Here in America, teenagers aged 12 to 15 can now start receiving COVID vaccines as soon as tomorrow, which is great news especially for Matt Gates, because now his dating life can pick up again. And other countries are also stepping up their vaccine programs too. Although over in Italy, there are now five doses less than there should be. 
A 23-year-old woman has been discharged from a hospital in Italy after she was mistakenly given six doses of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. A healthcare worker accidentally filled a syringe with an entire bottle of the vaccine containing a total of six doses and only realized her mistake shortly after the shot was administered. The patient, who is in, quote, good health with no underlying conditions, was kept in the hospital for observation. Doctors say they will continue to monitor that woman's immune response to the massive dose of vaccine. Wow. This one woman got more vaccines than all of Wyoming. I mean, yeah, mistakes happen, but this is really everyone's worst nightmare at the doctor's office, you know, because you can tell if a waiter brings you the wrong food or if your plumber didn't stop a leak. But let's be honest. You don't know enough about medicine to know exactly what the nurses and doctors are doing. Like, whenever they're cupping my balls, that might be a medical necessity or it could just be like a long-running practical joke that doctors have been playing on us since forever. There's no way to know. We've seen, like, why would they do that? And cup it, then they pull it down, then they tell you to bark, huh? I'll tell you what, though. This woman is really lucky that this didn't happen in America. Because over here, man, they'd be like, don't worry, ma'am, you're gonna be completely fine, but those extra five doses are gonna cost you $2 million. Will that be cash or card? Now, one thing is for sure. If that woman survives this, she is gonna be coronavirus's worst nightmare. I mean, forget fighting COVID. If you get that much vaccine in you, whew, you'll be able to see COVID. And finally, the US Secret Service. They're the reason America's president is so comfortable talking all that shit. During the years when Donald Trump was president, we heard a lot about how he and his people caused chaos at almost every government institution. The State Department, the Post Office, hell, he even asked the Department of Agriculture to grow potatoes with all the fixins already inside. But we didn't hear many stories about the Secret Service under Trump. Well, that is until now. Some stunning revelations in a new book, and it says Trump family members became, quote, inappropriately close with some Secret Service agents. Inappropriately close with Vanessa Trump, Donald Trump Jr.'s ex-wife, means that there was a relationship that was formed that the two did date. But certainly this relationship, if it did exist, is inappropriate and also against Secret Service rules. Uh, Secret Service protectors are not supposed to get personal with their protectees as it may compromise um, their situation guarding them. Now, another nugget in here involves Tiffany Trump. It was said in this book that Tiffany Trump developed a close relationship with a, quote, tall, dark, and handsome Secret Service agent on her detail after breaking up with one of her boyfriends. This is a, another thing that came out in this post in The Guardian story is a little teaser from Carol's book that says that Trump did not like the appearance of some of his agents. Uh, he said, uh, quote, I want these fat guys off my detail. How are they going to protect me and my family if they can't run down the street? Wait, hold up. Do Trump's Secret Service agents really need to be that fit? I mean, if we're honest, they only need to run fast enough to keep up with him. Not to mention, if I was the size of Trump, I would want all my Secret Service agents to be huge, just to make myself look thin in comparison. You have one mission to protect me. 
You're a petite president, so petite, so tiny. And uh, as for the Trump women, I mean, come on, are we surprised? Of course they fell for their bodyguards, anyone would. These people are physically fit and willing to die for you? Whew, you find someone like that on Tinder. In fact, getting into a relationship with your bodyguard is actually a good idea in my opinion. Yeah, because then they'll want to protect you even more. I mean, yes, the downside is that when the relationship gets stale and the danger comes, then all of a sudden they'll be like, am I really gonna risk my life for a person who leaves hair in the shower drain? Now, unfortunately, overweight Secret Service agents aren't the only people Trump wants to get rid of. You see, these days, he's focused on purging the Republican Party of anyone who isn't sufficiently loyal to him. People like Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who has spent the past few months saying things that make Trump really angry, like that the election wasn't stolen, that trying to overthrow the government is bad, and that Twitter is still fun without him. Whew. Now, what made this especially ballsy is that Cheney was saying all of this while holding the number three position in the party's congressional leadership, which was making everyone in the GOP pretty uncomfortable. I mean, here they are trying to move past the attempted coup and focus on looking forward to the next attempted coup. But Cheney just wouldn't let it go. So today, they decided to overthrow her. More breaking news from the Hill. Last hour, Liz Cheney was voted out as House Republican Conference Chair. She was number three in leadership. That position is no longer hers. House Republicans are expected to replace Cheney with New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. She has emerged as one of President, former President Trump's top defenders. Cheney spoke to cameras briefly afterwards. We cannot both uh, embrace the big lie and embrace the Constitution. I uh, will do uh, everything I can to ensure uh, that uh, the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office. Okay. Wow, I respect Liz Cheney taking a stand against Trump, but it does feel a little less threatening when she's doing it as she's being removed from power, you know? It's got the vibe of a villain falling into a volcano while saying, this isn't over. My man, it's over. No, it's, it's over. So, forced to choose between a party leader who told the truth about the election and a party leader who claims that the election shouldn't count because too many people voted, the GOP chose the lie. And if you want an idea of where the GOP is headed, well, there may be no better clue than the person who's expected to replace Cheney in party leadership. New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who just happens to be the subject in our latest installment of Fringe Watching. Given the state of the Republican Party right now, you might think that the person they're replacing Liz Cheney with would be a 180-proof Trumpist from the heart of MAGA country. But actually, for most of her political career, Elise Stefanik was the exact opposite. Elise Stefanik was not always considered a Trump Republican. Stefanik was seen as a moderate when, in 2014, she won a House race in upstate New York at age 30. She was the youngest woman ever elected to Congress when she first won uh, this office. And at that time, she was a pretty classic East Coast moderate conservative. In 2015, 2016, and the early days of the Trump administration, Stefanik repeatedly and publicly opposed Trump. Opposing him on NAFTA and trade, 
even voting against his signature 2017 tax cuts. She also criticized Trump's initiative to build a wall, saying, quote, I don't think that's realistic. In 2015, Stefanik also disagreed with Trump's calls for a Muslim ban, saying, this is not who we are as a country. And Stefanik wrote this after the release of the Access Hollywood tape. Donald Trump's inappropriate offensive comments are just wrong. Uh, I've disagreed with the president's rhetoric uh, numerous times when it comes to how he addresses women. So Elise Stefanik didn't like Trump's tax cuts, didn't like his trade deals, didn't like his Muslim ban, didn't like his sexism, didn't even like his wall. She basically didn't like anything about Trump, which is insane. I mean, you expect that from Trump's wife, but not a Republican congresswoman. So for a while, Stefanik was pretty much what used to be called a normal Republican. And then in late 2019, she saw an opportunity to make like Billie Eilish and give herself an eye-catching new image. Elise Stefanik became the breakout star of the House hearings for Trump's first impeachment, often tangling with Democrats. To have our Democratic colleagues say these untruthful statements just reeks of political desperation in their continued obsession to manipulate mainstream media coverage. Trump was so impressed at the time, he tweeted, a new Republican star is born. After Trump lost and started pushing the big lie, Elise Stefanik signed on fighting to overturn the 2020 electoral results in both Pennsylvania and Texas. As this newly minted version of Stefanik moved ever closer to Trump's orbit, her fundraising exploded and so did her profile. Stefanik became a regular on Fox News and her cheerleading for Team Trump moved into hyperdrive. Stefanik was clearly on Trump's radar, even if he couldn't pronounce her name. Elise Stefanik. Look, you can't take offense to that. Trump pronounces words like a great jazz musician. You'll never hear it the same way twice, twice. Now to outsiders, this might have seemed like Stefanik suddenly embracing the dark side, you know, like Anakin turning into Darth Vader, except for the part about wearing a mask. But the truth is, she probably just made a straightforward calculation. She saw where the party was going and she decided to go along with it. You know, it's just a little awkward to start rooting for someone after they've been publicly disgraced. I never really liked R. Kelly's music, but now that I've heard the charges against him, it's kind of dope. It's the Mr. Ignition, put the fish out of the kitchen. I mean, like, are you guys hearing this? And once Stefanik hopped on the Trump train, she never looked back. In fact, these days, it can sometimes be hard to tell her and Trump apart. Democrats are obsessed with impeachment. They have been obsessed with impeachment. The phony Russia hoax. The phony Russia hoax of Russia collusion. We need election integrity and election reform immediately. We want to be able to fix and strengthen our election security and election integrity. Sleepy Joe rejects the scientific approach in favor of locking all Americans in their basements for months on end. Joe Biden wants to keep them locked up in the basement. Damn. This goes way beyond just agreeing with Trump. It actually sounds like she's preparing to play Trump in a movie. I must become Trump. This is my process. So in the end, Elise Stefanik surrendered her principles, her dignity, and even her voice to Donald Trump. And what did that get her? Enormous amounts of cash, the support of a passionate base of voters, the inside track to a powerful position in party leadership. 
Yes. Yes, it gave her all those things. But was it worth it? Because it seems like it was kind of worth it. I mean, goddamn. All right, when we come back, Jordan Klepper checks out the latest recount in Arizona. So don't go away. Are you a Republican who regrets blaming Trump for the January 6th insurrection? Then you need Insurrectagon, the powerful new drug that provides instant relief from whatever guilt you feel that your leader incited an attempted coup. With Insurrectagon, you'll go from this. Trump and I, we've had a hell of a journey. All I can say is uh, count me out, enough is enough. To this. It's impossible for this party to move forward without President Trump being its leader. Insurrectagon acts quickly to suppress whatever democratic principles or aversion to violence you might be feeling. Just one dose can stop those doubts, as well as any potential primary challengers. Reckoning with your role in one of America's darkest days is a tough pill to swallow, which is why Insurrectagon now comes in gummy form. Yum! History never forgets, but you can. Just listen to these satisfied customers. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. We have were so successful under President Trump, the last thing we want to do is be fighting among ourselves. The president's language and rhetoric crossed a line and it was reckless. Let me tell you this right now, Donald J. Trump ain't going anywhere. So you think it was an impeachable offense? Oh, sure. How do you grade Trump as president? Oh, listen, overall, I give the president an A. The results of Insurrectagon are undeniable. Insurrectagon is for treatment of moderate to severe regret that you supported a coup attempt. Ask your doctor if your democracy is strong enough to ignore an insurrection. Insurrectagon. Overthrow your memory. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Now, you might think that the 2020 presidential election is over but somehow it is still going on in Arizona. So we sent Jordan Klepper to find out what the hell is going on in another episode of Jordan Klepper, Fingers the Pulse. Last week, I traveled to a sweltering Arizona where Republican state senators are auditing results of the 2020 election in a giant arena next to an actual carnival. Sure, there's already been two audits and a recount, and it's 101 goddamn degrees out, but there are still men like this ready to throw their support behind election integrity. I've been here all week, uh, and I'll be here until the audit's done, is my plan. So this, what's going on right back here is the most important thing going on in our country right now. What do you have there on your hip? Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum. There has been word that Antifa and BLM may be coming in, so they're uh, trying to be careful and, uh, and, and secure uh, the premises. Have you seen? Any signs of Antifa? You guys have probably heard about the carnival that's going on here. There's a little concern about whether or not uh, that would provide uh, those kind of folks uh, an opportunity to come in and try to infiltrate and get access. So there is some fear that BLM might meet behind a tilt-a-whirl, organize, and then bum-rush the situation. Uh, bad people can do bad things, and I'm not going to say what they may try to do. Outside of possible Antifa carnies, which was laid out in official documents outlining potential security threats, what's the harm in one more recount? I know that it's comical to watch what's happening here in Arizona, but I think that it is also important to note that this is really dangerous to our democracy. And you know what, we saw how dangerous the post-election misinformation was. This is a group of people who are clearly partisan. It is headed by a company that has no auditing or election experience, and they're making up the rules as they go along. So who's running the audit? 
Cyber Ninjas. Did you say Cyber Ninjas? I did say Cyber Ninjas. Is it run by a 12-year-old boy? Uh, it sounds like it, right? <laughs> While the Cyber Ninjas website looks like the invitation to my ninth birthday party, we must not judge audit companies by their splash page. But you give it to the pros, let the pros handle this. These are not pros. Well, they're cyber ninjas. That it takes some amount of training, I assume. Their firm has nothing to do with audits or elections. Well, uh, maybe they're newish to it. How many audits have they done? None. They've never done an audit? No. Well, I mean, give them a wide berth, right? First job, you want to root, sometimes you make some mistakes with your first job. I remember my first job, I burned a lot of hamburgers. You know. And I worked in a TJ Maxx. <laughs> there are a lot of Arizona voters who are very, very concerned about this. And I don't think they like the idea of their ballots, um, their election being in the hands of these rookies. Turns out the audit has had some issues in the trust department, starting with Cyber Ninja's conspiracy theorist CEO, an auditor who attended the January 6th insurrection and mysterious UV lights used to look for Chinese bamboo in paper ballots. Really, to help clear the air, I talked to John Brakey and Ken Bennett, who are inside working on the audit. There's been so many bizarre stories going on through the media. You can have uh, some pretty far-fetched ideas on both sides. And what we're doing is simply proving or disproving as many of those as we can. Speaking of somebody on the outside, this feels like it's just feeding into conspiratorial thinking. We're mythbusters. <laughs> Great. Okay. okay. We're I doing things we think are foolish, but people believe it's real. What is this I hear of a UV light? There, there was a UV light oh. that was being used to uh, supposedly check for watermarks in the ballot. I want to follow up on this. Bamboo? Bizarre, huh? That's because Southeast Asia has used this bamboo in their paper, supposedly, okay? We're myth-busting. But are you looking for traces of bamboo? You, We're looking for like... everything in there. So that's a yes? We're looking to disprove that it's not there. Some people believe that paper yeah. from outside of the authentic ballot paper that should have been part of the Maricopa audit got introduced into the system and might be the paper on which 40,000 people cast illegitimate votes. All Chinese ballots are on bamboo? Yeah. Is it because soy sauce would be too obviously racist? Oh my goodness. Is there a chance people believe this because people add fuel to the fire by elevating this and, and therefore letting that then be part of the conversation? If, if we validate that something they think might have happened didn't happen, then we're not throwing fuel on the fire. Are you looking into the Hungarian vector? I didn't know about that it's one. Hungarian it's a bullshit thing I just made up that sounds cool and a little bit spooky. I was fortunate enough to see the operation firsthand, and the people led by the cyber ninjas were definitely counting and observing. But there is still one thing that can at least temporarily derail this audit. Teenagers. We've known from the very beginning that there's some high school graduations coming in in uh, two weeks. So we'll have to step aside for about a week while the graduations occur. You don't have a place to count the ballots in two weeks? No, no just for one week we're going to shut down. We'll secure the ballots, and then when the graduations are over, uh, we'll come back and... and this is not a job. joke. I know it's not a joke, but you want us to trust you, but you're like, we're going to lock the ballots in there and then let a bunch of teenagers no, come through for a week, uh, no, and then no, we'll start no, counting no, again? No, no, no that we'll is not a case at all. Secure the ballots, right. We'll come on, let's get yep. serious. No, I got it. No, it's serious. Let's be serious. This is a very serious it's subject. It's very serious. Okay, so it's not a joke. It's not a joke. Let's go back to the bamboo talking. But it's not a joke. Until we settle the very serious bamboo situation, you can find me in a place that's run by professionals not attempting to thwart our democracy. 
the other carnival. Thank you so much for that, Jordan. All right, when we come back, Michelle Zana will be joining me on the show to talk about all the Korean dishes that I need to try. So don't go away. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. My guest tonight is Michelle Zana, also known as the indie musician Japanese Breakfast. We talked about her incredible new memoir that explores grief, food, and identity, and we talked about her upcoming new album. Michelle Zana, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you for having me. Um, let's start off with one of the biggest conundrums I found while trying to do research on you, and that is, in your bio on Twitter, you say you are Korean. You say this everywhere you go, and yet, and yet your stage name is Japanese. And I'd love to know, like, the creative inspiration behind how you chose your, your, your name as a performer on stage. Sure. It's unfortunately not a very interesting story. I started the band as a side project in 2012 or 2013 with no idea that it would grow into what it is now or that I would ever be talking about my Korean identity so much. And I just saw a picture of Japanese breakfasts on the internet and thought, that sounds nice. <laughs> and so <laughs> I breakfast and uh yeah it's unfortunately not not the most fitting name especially now that i've written a book that's so much about korean food <laughs> you know you've gone from being a darling in the music scene to now being so many people's favorite writer you are now a new york times best-selling author congratulations on that um i think your book was number two on the new york times bestseller list right be behind george w bush and i think your response to that was my favorite you said damn george w bush and his paintings but <laughs> <laughs> but yet, talk to me about why you thought, you know what, I'm gonna write a book about my life, I'm gonna write a book about proudly Korean and being proudly Korean and my family, and I think this will resonate with everyone. I didn't think much about it resonating with anyone, to be honest. It came from such a personal place with such a sense of urgency, I think, to sort of bear the wounds of, of caretaking and losing someone to illness. And uh, this very unique experience that I went through, which was learning how to cook Korean dishes as a way to commemorate my mother and a way to move past trauma and preserve my cultural heritage. Yeah, the, the title in and of itself is, is beautiful. It's Crying in H-Mart. And I love how throughout the book, it, it really is an homage to your Korean heritage and to H-Mart itself. Why, why did you feel like, you know what? This is what, this is the title of the book. Because titles, I feel, always hold so much meaning beyond just what we're reading on the, on the cover. Yeah, H-Mart just became a real refuge for me after my mother passed away, after going to Eugene, Oregon and living as a caretaker and watching my mother's health deteriorate, I really had a difficult time remembering my mother before she was sick. And that was so heartbreaking to me. And it wasn't until I went to H-Mart and I found like a can of sweet red beans that I had this beautiful memory of my mom and I in Seoul every other summer enjoying papingsu, which is like this Korean shaved ice dessert. And I just became addicted to sort of searching for that feeling, um, such an important way of navigating my grief. And yeah, I just cried a lot in H-Mart and it was a very healing experience for me. When you were writing this, you have to relive a lot of it. Was that a therapy for you or did that just reignite a lot of those traumas and that pain that you had previously experienced? I think it was both, you know, I think as an artist, there's this desire to 
poke at the wound in this way, but that's sort of the Nick Cave calls it the pact that you make with love. Grief is the pact that you make with love. And um, I feel like it was really necessary for me to look back at that part of my life and analyze it and understand it and investigate it. And it was ultimately really healing for me. I think I made it a little bit easier for myself by sort of wading in through these more pleasant memories of my childhood and what made my relationship with my mother so interesting. But there was also this part of the book that I just, I felt so upset that I had never read something like this that would have warned me that this is what illness looks like. And I this real need to tell everyone and warn everyone that this is, this is what living close to death looks like. Did you find writing the book helped you forgive your mom for, for, for some of the issues that the two of you went through? Absolutely. I think that even more so, I was able to forgive myself for what I put my mom through in my adolescent years. Wow. And I, think that, I think that everyone, a lot of people can relate to that sort of tumultuous adolescence and that struggle for independence. And especially as a young creative trying to find my voice, that was a major point of contention between my mother and I. And so I feel like through writing this book, I found, you know, not only a lot of forgiveness for the way that she felt this need to sort of protect me from this lifestyle and, mm-hmm. and this financial risk and struggle of that, but I also was able to forgive myself for what I put her through. And in the end, I found a lot of success as a, a creative on my own terms in this way that she never got to saw, so never got to see. So I feel like I was able to uh, forgive myself for that in, in a way as well. <laughs> You, you also had to find your love for being Korean again. And you, you share that so beautifully in the book. You know, growing up in a community that was predominantly white, you share candidly how you wanted to discard all parts of yourself that could be seen as not white. What was it like? And, 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 and how would you talk to other young kids in your position who go, I just, I just want to be one of the kids. I don't want to be Korean. I, I, I just want to fit in. I don't want to be Asian at all. How did you rediscover your joy and your celebration of yourself and your heritage? To be honest, I don't feel like I was able to find that until after my mom passed away. And it's my hope that a lot of this sort of younger generation is um, already kind of learning how to celebrate their differences. Um, and a big part of that is the online community and, and how we're able to share these sort of experiences. Uh, whereas when I was younger, it felt so isolating and like something to shirk. So yeah, I can imagine. Like, unfortunately, I just sort of came into it sort of later. Um, and I guess my advice would be, you know, I hope that people are able to be proud of of their background before they sort of come into it a little bit too late, you know, because I was, I'm sure such a pain for my mom to witness me sort of uh, trying to shirk off that part of my identity for quite some time. You, um, you are still in music, you are still an artist. Um, you know, you're gonna continue your journey in that realm. The world is gonna open up again. You're gonna go back out on tour. Do you think that anything you've written in the book will now affect what kind of music you would like to make or how you would write your music is, have you found anything bleeding in from one medium to the other? Definitely, they're really in conversation with one another. And I feel like after writing my first two records, which were largely about 
grief and loss and then an entire book about that experience, I felt really ready to sort of start this new chapter and run to the other spectrum of, of human experience. So the new album, which comes out on June 4th, is called Jubilee and it's about joy. And um, I feel like through the process of writing all this material, I was sort of giving myself permission to really embrace that and feel that and fight for it in my life. And that's what the new album is about. Well, I love it. I feel like it's going to be the complete journey. We get to cry with you in H-Mart, and then in June, we get to experience some Jubilee. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show, and congratulations on writing a truly astounding book. Thank you so much for having me. Don't forget, everybody, Michelle's memoir, Crying in H-Mart, is available now, and the new Japanese breakfast album, Jubilee, comes out on June 4th. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so please consider supporting an organization called Therapy Aid Coalition. They're a nonprofit committed to providing free and low-cost online therapy to essential workers and to victims of national disasters. If you are able to, please go to the link below and donate whatever you can. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, if you see a tiger on the street, do not try and catch him by his toe. That is harassment, and he will file a lawsuit. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central, and stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.